summer of 2019, Tina Ennis and her now 26-year-old daughter took an in-home DNA test. You know the test. You can get them online. There's probably a Black Friday sale even on right now. Tina wanted to know about her grandfather. He had died before she was born, and so she wanted to learn a little bit about him. And so she took her test. She, a few weeks later, she got results, and the results surprised her. She imagined that there would be people with her name attached to her family line, but nobody in her family was connected to her on the Ancestry.com website. In fact, it was a bunch of people with the last name Brister. She called her mom and asked her mom, do you know any Bristers? But she didn't. Eventually, she convinced her mom, Catherine, to take the same test. And here's a picture of Tina and Catherine. Catherine, her results came back. And for some reason, Tina and Catherine's test results didn't sink either. She figured at first that it was because she had stopped paying her Ancestry.com fee. Happens sometimes. But when she called the folks in Salt Lake, they said, no, no, it's, it's okay. This is something, sometimes you learn some things on Ancestry.com. Tina's daughter became convinced that her mother had been switched at birth. Tina wasn't so convinced of it herself. However, her daughter, being the online sleuth that she is, and her generation lends itself to be, got online and started looking for women in her area that had been born on the same day as her mother. Little by little by little, she whittled it down until she found somebody on Facebook. You know it's going to be Facebook that looked an awful like, a lot like her grandmother. Oh, man. Tina, after her daughter had convinced her, talked with her for several sittings, reached out to this lady, a lady named Jill Lopez online. She said, she's going to think I'm crazy. She's going to think I'm a scam artist. But no, Jill had wondered a little bit herself about her past. She said, I never quite fit in with my family. So after they talked for a little while, Jill agreed to take a DNA test too. She called Tina the day that the test results came back, but Tina had already seen the results. For she had logged on to her mom's account, and already the connections were being made. My heart sank, Tina said, because I realized this is for real. Tina didn't want to tell her mom initially. She wanted to make sure that it was absolutely certain. So she arranged to have a lunch with Jill at a local restaurant. After visiting with her for over two hours, she realized that the similarities between her mom and Jill 
There was no denying these, this was her daughter. So she arranged a time to break the news to mom. At first, her mom resisted the information, telling her over and over, no, you're the one I took from the hospital. You're the baby. But then she showed her a picture. The next slide shows you what they look like. There, her mom in the middle, her mom on the left and the daughter in the middle. There they are. They look so much alike. She said, when I saw her come through that door, I realized it was true. She looked like me. Now, three years later, these women are still struggling with what the new normal entails. Jill says, I just had to get my emotions straight for a while because it's a whole lot to get my mind around. I mean, I had a mom, and I have a mom, and now I have a different mom. Tina adds, from the outside, we all look pretty good. But in my opinion, it's not something I would wish on anyone. Over the last 10 years, at-home genetic tests have grown to a multi-million dollar industry. There's estimates that by 2028, $10 billion will be going through that industry. And many times, there are some unexpected pieces of information that are received with those who take the tests. Things that they didn't want to see. Things that they never knew had happened. They're realizing through these tests. The truth is, none of us can pick our family of origin, can we? How many of you picked your family? Not a hand. But most of us are interested in something of where we came from. Some of us have been adopted and want to know about our family tree. Some of us have limited connection with those in previous generations. But there was one who did pick his family. That was Jesus. And as we look at those he picked, it leaves us scratching our heads. Why, Jesus, did you pick the people you picked to be in your family? Let's pause for a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study. Father, we come to you in need of a word from heaven. As we turn to your word, speak to our hearts. And may the invitation that you give, may we be willing to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we're going to look at four grandmothers identified in Matthew 1. So if you have your Bible nearby, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. As you turn there, I want to do a, a little chemistry experiment with you. Now, admittedly, I'm not a chemist. Admittedly, it wasn't my top class in academy. But let's say, for an instance, that we could take a beaker and we could mix up all the qualities that you would want in a grandmother. Let's play like a, a fantasy draft of grandmothers, okay? Well, let's, let's look at some qualities. For, first, Perhaps we would want someone athletic. 
Maybe someone like Serena Williams, someone that could endure hardship, someone that had grit and grime and could push through during difficult situations. Okay, that would be good. On top of physical strength, maybe we would want someone with a kind heart, someone that's generous, self-sacrificing, gentle. Ah, let's mix in with Serena, a little bit of Mother Teresa. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. And then on top of physical strength, on top of grit and grime, we would want someone who was a stateswoman. Yeah, someone that perhaps even had a royal bearing. Ah, let's add a little bit of Queen Elizabeth into our beaker. You mixing it up yet? And oh, 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 we'd want some brains as well. We have grit and brawn. We have strength. We have kindness. We have a statesman, but we need someone with brains. A Marilyn Voss savant. Maybe some of you have read her column in Parade Magazine. Guinness Book of World Records once listed her as the smartest woman in the world. It wouldn't hurt to have a little brains in the operation either. Nice genetics, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be the composite of a perfect grandmother? But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't necessarily take the best and the brightest, and the ones that people would say are the cream of the crop. Let's go back to Matthew 1 and start reading the genealogy. Matthew 1, and we'll start in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Okay, It looks like it's going according to plan. We know those people. Those are all the patriarchs from Abraham down the line. Well, let's look at verse 3. So, it says in verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Do you notice a word in verse 3 that's not found in verse 1 or 2? It's a two-letter word. It begins with the letter B and ends with the letter Y. The word by. We have our first grandmother. Her name is Tamar. Tamar. Ah, we need to learn something about her. But before that, let we do that, let's continue in reading our verse. Matthew 1, and now verse 4. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot, begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Two more grandmothers. First, we have Rahab. And next, we have Ruth. Ah, we must spend a little time on them as well. Let's continue on, though, before we go and read more of their story. Verse 6, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon. And here's our word again. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. Not even named, we find Bathsheba. 
That's right. A fourth grandmother. Man, now we have four cases that we'll look into. Let's begin first with Tamar. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. Sandwiched in between the narrative of Joseph, Joseph before Egypt and Joseph in Egypt, is a chapter that's titled in my Bible, Judah and Tamar. It's interesting that if you were to go and look at some of the common places that we would read Bible stories, both for adults and for children, you won't find this story. It's not in those books. There's something about this story that makes people pause and wonder. Could it be that this story is just an anecdote that could be left off? I was reading some commentators and one said, yeah, let's, let's just skip through this one and continue on. But I don't believe that God would have allowed this to be in the Bible and there not be a lesson for us. Every word of Scripture is good for us to look into. So, let's look at this. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah, who we remember from the previous chapter, had stood in opposition to his brothers. When they said, let's go and kill Joseph, he had said, no, wait, let's sell him instead. Judah had moved away from the family compound, moved away from the tents of his father Jacob, and was now living in Canaanite territory. And now he found himself a wife, and it was time for him to find a wife for his son. We pick up the story in verse 6. Genesis chapter 38 and verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, which means date palm. Maybe someone here in this church this morning has the name Tamara. That's where we find that the etymology of Tamra, Tamar. Tamar married Ur. But Ur was wicked. And the Bible says God killed him. Killed him before they were able to have any children. And following the regulations of the day, the Leviterate regulations, try to say that word, five times fast, Judah asked that his second son, Onan, marry Tamar to continue the family line. Onan married her, but refused to have children with her. And because of this, God killed him as well. Tamar, two brothers, both died, is left childless. And she looks and wonders, why, God? Why? And then, hmm, hmm, there's a younger brother, but he's not old enough to get married. And Judah says to himself, I'm not sure I want to give this boy anyway. This lady is not good luck. I gave my first son, and he died. I gave my second son, and he died. <sighs> After a period of time, well, so Judah, I don't want to miss this ingredient, Judah 
decides that, hey, let's send her away with the promise that when my youngest son, Sheila, is grown, she can have him as a husband. So they send her away, and she keeps tabs of the family. She knows what's happening, and she learns that Judah's wife has died. And she realizes that Sheila's not coming to take her back anytime soon. This is where the story departs from our child books. She took things into her own hands. She had heard that Judah was out with the men. They were having sheep shearing festivities. It was a time of celebration when they brought in the wool. And so she dressed herself as a temple prostitute with the idea that she could allure Judah into conceiving a child with her. Ultimately, she was successful. However, when they met up and it was time for Judah to pay, he didn't have anything to pay for her services. So he left his signet, his cord, and his staff with her as payment. Later, word got back to Judah that she was pregnant three months pregnant, and he called for her to be burned. Tamar meekly pulled out of a bag three things, a signet, a cord, and a staff, and said, by the man who owns these was this child created. Judah realized his sin. And was touched the heart. Let's read what he says in verse 26. He says, He said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give to her Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. So why Tamar? Why Tamar? Why did Jesus choose her? to be one of his grandmothers. Well, here are some ideas that I've come up with. Perhaps you have some of your own as you read the passage. Tamar represents those who are waiting. Perhaps you're waiting right now. You're waiting for a relationship to come to fruition. You're waiting for a job situation. You're waiting for physical healing. Maybe. You're waiting for a child to come back to the Lord. Whatever it is, including Tamar in his genealogy, shows that Jesus is there for us who wait. He identifies with our waiting. And he says, I am with you in that wait. You are part of my family as you wait. Second, Although admittedly Tamar took things into her own hands. Admittedly that she did things in a way that you and I would not recommend. God's grace welcomes Tamar and, should I say even more, Judah. Who not only did her wrong, but pursued her in this relationship. His grace welcomes both of them. Judah admits 
that he was less righteous than she, but grace encloses both of them. Scandalous sin, the sin of Judah and Tamar, demands scandalous grace. Have you messed up like Judah? Have you slipped up like Tamar? Christ's grace is available to you. And third, I believe that Judah's encounter with Tamar could have been a conversion point for him. For not only do we find him in the very next chapter of the Bible, standing in the place of his brother, saying, take my life instead of my brother's. We find later on that Jacob, his father, skipped not one, not two, not, but three. Three sons he skipped before he gave his birthright. The first three boys didn't get the birthright. It wasn't until Judah came, number four, who received the birthright. I believe this experience with Tamar gave Judah a humbleness and a sensitivity to his own weakness. Sometimes men especially need this. We come out with confidence and gusto. And it takes a humiliation like Judah went through to make us the strong leader that God is calling us to be. To have the dependence not on ourselves, but on God. To realize that it's not in our strength, but His, that we can stand strong. Now that we've looked at Tamar a little bit, let's talk a little bit about Rahab. She's number two in our lineup. Rahab's story is found in the book of Joshua. So if you'd like to join me in Joshua, Joshua 2 and then later Joshua 6, we read her story. Now this is a story that's a little bit more familiar to us. It does show up in the children's books. It does show up in the series of books that we often turn to for narratives on the word of God. But it's interesting. The story begins with Joshua. He sends out two men to spy over Jericho. And those men end up spending a night at the home of Rahab, who had the, the same type of business proposition that Tamar had. Yet, there's no indication in Scripture that the men partook of her services. To the casual observer, spending a the night there might have been a little off, a little risque, perhaps. But perhaps that's why the place, going to a place like that, made it the perfect place to hide. Men were always going in and out of there. They wouldn't be noticed. So perhaps this was just the place that God led them. Rahab hides the men from the pursuing Jericho security forces, ultimately letting them down by a rope. You remember the story? to safety from her window. And as the men leave, they promise that they will come and rescue her and her family. Later, when the city is miraculously destroyed, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. We probably sang it today in some of our Sabbath schools. He rescues Rahab and all of those living in her home. In fact, it says in Joshua 6.23, all the young men who had been spies went in, 
and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So why Rahab? What's so interesting about Rahab? Why would Jesus choose her to be one of his grandmothers? First of all, Rahab teaches us that God saves those with a past. How many of you have a past? How many of you have made mistakes that you wish you hadn't? When we accept the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus, grace covers our past mistakes. Not only does God accept those with the past, God uses people with a past. You see how she has become a savior, and I say this with a lower S, to not only the spies, but to her whole family. She stands in the place of the one who will come, Jesus. It may just be that your past mistakes are the very thing that God uses to save another. God wants you to be a savior, little less, to those around you. And number three, God redefines those who have a past. Not only did she save, but the very thing that once defined her in a negative sense, her profession, her livelihood. God took that same thing and made for good. As one commentator says, God took Rahab from a fallen woman to a chosen woman, from a bad girl to a bride, from a mess to a mother, and from a prostitute to the progenitor of the Messiah. God is all about taking messes and making them right. Is your life a mess? Has your life been a mess? There's an invitation through Rahab that God may not be done with you yet. Your mess might be just the thing he's wanting to use for good. Now, there's still two, two other grandmothers to consider, so let's look at the next one here. We'll quickly get through these. Our next grandmother is Ruth. A whole book of the Bible is dedicated to Ruth, and this is one that we know fairly well. It's a book of rich parallels to the salvation story. In some way, and some of you may be challenged with this idea, Ruth's story is one that's fit for a Hallmark movie. You know, the ones that are out now, you can watch them 24-7. Men, yeah. My wife told me not to make fun of them, so I better be careful here. But the basic plot goes like this. Miss Sweet, now single, leaves behind a broken past and moves home where she puts her mind and energy into making life right in her new place. And suddenly, like a knight on a white horse, Mr. Wright appears, who after some minor complications, falls in love with her and she with him. Happily ever after. That's how they work, don't they? 
we can predict from about scene one or two how it's going to work out, can't we, Jared? But <clears throat> Ruth's story is more than just a good Hallmark flick. It's a story of choice. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of a future beyond happily ever after. Turn with me to Ruth, and we'll look at Ruth chapter 1. Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, right before 1 Samuel. Ruth is a Moabitess of a group of people despised by the Israelites. Her story goes like this. She meets up with Malon, an Israelite, as his family is fleeing famine in Moab. They marry, but unfortunately, tragedy hits. Her dreams are dashed when Malon, and not only he, but his brother and his father, all die tragically. This leaves Ruth a widow, an orphan almost, with her sister-in-law, Orpha, and Orpa and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Three ladies. Ruth is given a choice, as we remember, whether to stay in Midian or to continue on with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And her response, we find in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. In this proclamation, she shows her loyalty, not only to Naomi, but to God. She puts her feet firm and steady. And after making this decision, Ruth and Naomi, dirt poor, head to Bethlehem. There, Ruth, looking for work, meets the son of Rahab. Interesting how these stories connect. He is now an older, rich landowner. And more importantly, he's single. He's a relative of her father-in-law. And showing kindness to her allows Ruth to glean from his barley and wheat fields. Soon Naomi, realizing the familial connections, hatches a plan. She said, Ruth, you see Boaz? Yeah. She convinces Ruth to quietly lie down at Boaz's feet as he rests following his evening meal. Startled by her arrival, Boaz asks Ruth what she's doing, and she asks to be taken under his wing. This is an indication of her desire to marry him. To Boaz, these words almost seem too good to be true. He'd thought about Ruth, but, she, but he figured, not me. I'm too old. She must be interested in a man closer to her age. It hadn't, given, 
It hadn't stopped him from investigating, though. You could tell that because he knew who the closest relative was. He had been thinking in his mind, if, if she's interested in me, this is what I'll have to do. And the next day, he's on the mission. He's consumed about securing Ruth's hand, seeking out the one relative closer to her and negotiating her redemption. Ultimately, Ruth and Boaz marry and have a son named Obed who goes on to have a son of his own named Jesse. So why Ruth? Well, here's some considerations. Number one, God seeks to bring Hope to those who have lost hope. In her darkest moment, God gave Ruth a choice whether to trust his hand or to go her own way. And what a blessing he had in store for her. Number two, God invites us to look beyond earthly comforts, earthly attractions, the younger man, as it were, and to look something better, something that he has in store for us. And number three, God wants to be like Boaz, our Goel, or kinsman redeemer. He offers to us through Jesus the opportunity to be hid under his wings. As Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer, or Goel, is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. God invites us to be in relationship with Him as Jesus serves as our kinsman Redeemer. Now, let's look at our final grandmother, Bathsheba. You find her story in 2 Samuel Continue on just a few pages. First and second Samuel, and then first and second Kings. So second Samuel, chapter eleven and twelve. In this story, David, instead of joining his troops out in the battlefield as he was supposed to, is relaxing on his palace roof roof in Jerusalem. And as he is strolling, his eye catches a woman. A woman who is ceremonially being cleaning herself. After her time of the month, she is now cleaning herself as was described in the Bible. And many people, commentators, have actually said that it's very possible that she was very presentable when she was bathing. She wasn't bathing in the same mode that you and I would bathe. She's been bathing in a way she could bathe in public. Nevertheless, as she bathes, David sees something he likes. His eye lingers, and he begins to admire. He calls for her to join him. But before he calls for her, he asks who she is. He finds out that not only is she the daughter of one of his top soldiers, she's the wife of yet another. The 30 top soldiers that he has, she's related to two of them. But that doesn't stop him from asking her to come. He invites her to come. He sleeps with her, and they conceive a child. 
Now, the problem is manifold for David. He has to figure out how can we cover this up. So he invites her husband, Uriah, to come off the battlefield. Yet, Uriah, much more noble than David, refuses the invitation. After Uriah turns him away there, he places Uriah in the very thick of battle, sentencing him basically to death. After Uriah dies, David takes Bathsheba as his wife, thinking everything was covered. But as we know with sin, we can never truly cover it all. Chapter, uh, verse 27 of chapter 11 says, The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And God sent Nathan, his prophet, to expose the wickedness that David had done. Telling him that although he would die, his sin would cost him not his own life. Excuse me, let me say that again. Telling him that although he would not die, his sin would cost him the life of his son. The baby that was born to Bathsheba would die. What a painful consequence. Not only for David, but even more for Bathsheba. She was brought in against her will, conceived a child, and then the baby dies as a curse. Ultimately, there is some good in this story. For it says that David comforted Bathsheba, and they conceived yet another child, whose name was Solomon, meaning peaceful, or the one who recompenses. So, why Bathsheba? Well, number one, let's be clear. David was the sitter in this story. Bathsheba was the victim. But she was the one who ultimately paid the dear price. Losing the son she had lovingly carried for nine months and cared for. In this way, Bathsheba reminds us of Jesus. Who never sinned but died to pay the penalty of other sins. She died for something she had not committed. Thus, she represents Jesus. Number two, God can redeem all things. From her tragedy, God brought Solomon, who not only recompensed her loss for her firstborn, but brought peace to her heart. And number three, from Bathsheba, we learn what a godly woman can be like. Many attribute Proverbs 31 to Bathsheba. And this wonderful list, which serves young men as a great list of what you should be looking for in a wife, says the following about Bathsheba. She is worth far more than rubies. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman like Bathsheba, who fears the Lord, is to be praised. 
So, what is the bottom line with all of the four stories we've heard? God's grace overcomes all paths. God says, so be it that you messed up. So be it that things have happened to you. So be it that you've been victimized. I understand your pain. I understand your situations. But I call you to something more. I call you to a future and a hope in me. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that fullness, that fullness included Tamar. That fullness included Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. All that fullness included women who had challenges. Do you have challenges? Then perhaps you are included in his fullness of time too. Another fullness of time is about to take place. A fullness that a conquering king will bring. My invitation to you is to be part of that fullness today. 1 John 3, 1 says it this way, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Do you want to be his child? Oh, I pray that you do. In conclusion, as our praise team comes forward, I want to share one more story. It's the story of Guo Gantong, a man from Shandong, China. In 1997, his two-year-old son, Zin Zen, was playing outside and was kidnapped outside their family home. Desperate to find his son, Guo printed a flag with his son's picture and wrote a plea with contact information seeking his return. He attached the flag to his motorbike and began a journey of over 300,000 miles, exhausting 10 motorbikes along the way. His search even led movie producers to create a movie based on his story, but yet his son was not found. It wasn't until last year, after 24 years of searching, that a DNA test once again brought something positive. His wife and he were united with Zinzen now a 26-year-old man, and they met in a beautiful, tearful reunion. Friends, Jesus, who picked four grandmothers a little bit like us, is planning for a reunion like none other, and he wants you to be there. He says to you, yes, you may have had struggles in your past. Yes, you may have had hurts in your past, but I specialize in redeeming past cases. He invites you to accept Him as your Savior. He invites you to accept Him as a kinsman redeemer. He invites you to look beyond the pains that hold you back so that you can be ready for that new fullness in time. Today, as we sing our closing hymn, I want to invite any of you 
who in this season of looking back also want to look forward, who want to say, Jesus, I am coming to you, leaving my past behind. I am on your team. Please come forward and indicate that as we sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. second chances. We stand today desiring for you to do that great work that you want to do in our hearts. Dismiss us with your blessing. And as, as we go, may we choose, dear Jesus, that your God will be our God. May we cement this prayer today, so that we can be ready for that great reunion day. In the fullness of time, may we be there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.